0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. On this episode of the Commonweal podcast, I'm pleased to welcome Columba Stewart. He's a Benedictine monk and scholar, and since 2003, the executive director of the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library, known as Himmel, in Collegeville, Minnesota. Renowned for his work with international church leaders, governments, and cultural organizations, he's supervised the digitization of manuscript collections from Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and India, and he's also led initiatives focused on the digitizing of Islamic manuscripts through his partnerships with libraries in the Middle East, Africa, and India. My conversation with Columbus Stewart is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Columbus Stewart, thank you for being on the Commonweal Podcast.
1: My great pleasure.
0: So I think there's a question a lot of us have, who are not especially familiar with your work, but know about your type of work from what we've read and learned about Christian monks dedicated to the task of preservation and illumination of ancient documents. Just how does one come to do what you do here in the 21st century?
1: Well, actually, the roots of what we're doing do indeed go back to that stereotype of the monk hunched over the copy desk copying a manuscript. But the project that I lead has been in operation for the last 60 years. So it was a Cold War initiative of our monastery to microfilm manuscripts in Benedictine monasteries in Austria. And so for your listeners with longer memories, who are sort of in my age bracket, they may remember that Austria was a neutral country between the Warsaw Pact and NATO, the other important thing about Austria for Benedictines is it was one of the few places in Europe where monasteries still had their manuscripts because there had been no impact to the Reformation, French Revolution, and these other things that ended up putting manuscripts in great state libraries like in France and Germany, and elsewhere. So we were very worried about our Austrian brothers and their cultural heritage in the days when we thought there could be World War III, a ground war, a nuclear war. So that's how it started. And then it spun out from
0: there in all kinds of directions over the last six decades. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of Himmel, how it came to be and the scope and content of its holdings and the online platform.
1: Happy to. Well,
0: we began
1: simply as the monastic microfilm library. And so the roots are in the microfilming started in the 1960s. And then over time, as the mission grew, uh, we dropped the word microfilm. We added the family name Hill, thanks to a generous benefactor. And uh, our name today is the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library, but we call it Himmel. And we're in a kind of a region that has a lot of people of German background. And our monastery was founded from Bavaria. So there's a pun on Himmel, of course, because it means heaven. And when you come to visit, our space is actually in a basement. We do have windows. Garden level, I think, is what they call it in the real estate business. So it's a pun that you go down to Himmel, where you encounter the heaven of the study of manuscripts. So from that small beginning in Austria in the 1960s, we soon in the 70s did a pioneering microfilming project in Ethiopia with Eastern Christian manuscripts. And then worked across Europe. In 2003, we made two important turns. One was to finally embrace digital because we thought the quality of digital imaging had by that point surpassed 35 millimeter format microfilm. And the second thing was, while not leaving Europe entirely, our principal focus turned toward Christians in the Middle East. So we began work in Lebanon, soon in Syria. Southeast Turkey, eventually in Iraq. And so building up the Eastern Christian manuscript holdings as a counterpart to all the Latin things that we had done in various European countries. So we had already done the work in Ethiopia in the 70s. Now we had the Syriac and Armenian and Arabic-speaking Christian traditions from the Middle East to add to the fun. And then from 2011, we began involvement with collections of Islamic manuscripts, starting in the Holy City of Jerusalem, because we'd done some Christian work there. We were approached by a very prominent Palestinian Muslim family and asked if we would photograph their manuscripts. And we thought about it, and we realized that they have been in the Old City of Jerusalem alongside the Christian libraries that we had digitized for centuries. They've been interacting, they've been arguing, they've been doing business, they've been going to weddings, funerals. If we're going to try to preserve the intellectual culture of a place like that, we need to do all sides. The Hebrew stuff had all been done by the National Library of Israel, probably a unique achievement that they've photographed every known manuscript belonging to their religious tradition. We were then focusing on the Christian and Muslim collections And that led us to all sorts of adventures in Mali with the manuscripts of Timbuktu, South Asia and India and Pakistan with Islamic manuscripts there. So these days, our work is both Christian in Europe and the Middle East and Islamic in Africa and South Asia predominantly.
0: Yeah, that leads me to uh, another question. It's something I want to draw on in an interview that you did with Harvard Magazine a few years ago. And you've just begun to speak to this with your last comments, but you discussed the expansiveness of your project, saying that you'd already done a lot of the Christian material and that growing the library's collection means also preserving Islamic and East Asian materials. And I was struck by something you said that in that interview. You said heritage is heritage, and the intellectual argument is, why not get all the material of all the sides? And I wonder if you could elaborate on that idea a bit, that capaciousness, that ex- is expressed by that statement, heritage is heritage, and maybe how it informs you individually in your work.
1: Well, I think these days, from a Catholic perspective, we've learned over the last several decades that we need to engage with the other churches. And so we've learned the value of conversation on a Christian level. More recently, we've learned that we have to engage in interreligious dialogue if we're going to understand the world. We live in and the world in which we're making major decisions about things like war and peace and negotiation. So, I think this has always been an insight of many Christian thinkers that to expand their knowledge was not somehow betraying their religious commitment, but was truly faithful to it. Because the Second Vatican Council finally recognized and admitted that there is truth outside the Catholic Church. And therefore, we need to pay attention to it so that we expand our view of the universe as God has made it and our view of human knowledge. So just as Muslims saved the Greek classical writers for us, particularly their philosophy, which then came back to the Latin West and laid the foundations for the work of Aquinas and others, that same kind of cycle of passing knowledge back and forth, the broadening our view is something that I think has become all the more urgent today when it's no longer simply intellectual or religious inquiry, but it really is the basis for momentous international decisions. So I've often referred to the fact that the first Latin translation of the Quran was commissioned by a Benedictine abbot in the 12th century. And granted, his purpose was to engage in religious polemics with Muslims in Spain where his congregation had monasteries. But I think that still points to something that whether we're arguing or whether we're negotiating or whether we're simply conversing, we need to hear the other side. And then we recognize today, more and more, there isn't simply one other side. There are many. And so that's driving us in all these different directions. So the mission is the same even if the participants
0: in the work now come from a wider range of backgrounds. So I'm wondering, too, if there's something that you've encountered along the way, a specific printed book or Bible or map or other document or set of documents that you've helped work on or digitize or recover that might stand out for you or is worthy of special mention or something that especially moved you or struck you as profound when you encountered it. Well, there's so many things. People often
1: ask, what is your favorite manuscript? And I say, well, every manuscript I touch is my favorite. That's the way it is. I remember the first time I went to a rare book library, I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I was taking a course on astronomy. And there was this opportunity to go out to the Harvard Observatory and take, wait for it, glass plate photographs. So this dates it several decades ago of constellations and planets and so on. So I get this idea that I would take a photograph through the Harvard telescope of the Pleiades, that constellation. And I was really interested in comparing the photograph of it with Galilei's star maps. And the Harvard Rare Book Library had a copy of this first printed edition of the book, which had the star maps. And so I remember going in there, and it was a very forbidding place as an undergraduate. It was still in a very traditional rare book library where you felt unclean and unworthy as you approached, but they were very hospitable. And I got to look at the book and take some notes and then ended up being able to compare Galileo's map to this photograph. So that kind of got me intrigued by handling old books. And when I joined the monastery at St. John's Abbey, because we'd been around An American monastery, a long time since the 1850s. We had accumulated a lot of interesting old books, and we had abbots who would go to Rome every now and then in the 19th and early 20th centuries and come back with a trunk of books, which were probably not considered rare in those days, but which had become so. And we also had books that were given to us by European monasteries, collectors. So we had a kind of cave of treasures in the basements of the library where we had these old books, some manuscripts. And I started to get interested in that. And I befriended a collector closely associated with the Abbey, who ended up retiring here, spending his final years with us, who took me to auctions and told me what to look for, early printed books, manuscripts, all of this kind of thing. So I already had a an interest and a part-time professional commitment to working with the rare book collections of our Abbey and university here, when the work at Himmel fell into my lap. And that's a story I don't need to go into. Let's just say I did not plan to be director of Himmel, but sometimes the fates, or I prefer to think Providence, says, okay, here's a job you can do, and all that odds and ends of dilettantism, which characterized your life in your CV, is all going to come together in this job if you just stick with it long enough. So the French minor, which meant I could speak to people in francophone countries and this interest in books, so I knew what a manuscript was and what to look for. My interest in Christians in the Middle East, having spent time in Jerusalem and other parts of it, it all coalesced in this work. But of course, the key element is encounter with these ancient books and manuscripts, and making sure that whatever is in them, uh, and to the best extent possible, even elements of their material culture, are captured with high-quality digital imaging and then shared online. So I've had the privilege of holding in my hands manuscripts from Christian communities in the Middle East, for example, which have known severe persecution, seeing their numbers reduced by that persecution and resultant immigration, and in some cases, massacres. And to be able to hold a manuscript in my hand, and I can recognize the text maybe because it's a familiar Syriac, Armenian, Arabic text. But then what else is written on the manuscript is the names of the people who kept it and treasured it, when they bought it, where they were, what library it was at. And often also the notes by the scribe generally himself, but in some cases, female scribes, even in the pre-modern period, and saying a little bit about where they were when they wrote the book. And then you realize that these manuscripts, they move around, and they go from place to place, sometimes across enormous distances, sometimes from one village to another for safekeeping or because a family moves. And you realize that the manuscript itself is a material object, contains intellectual content, which needs to be put in dialogue with other manuscripts, not only of the same text, not only copies of the same text, but with other texts from other places. And that's how we recreate, in a sense, a map of the intellectual culture of the pre-modern world. So I sometimes say that manuscripts are the original Internet of Things. So it wasn't instantaneous contact or communication. But on the other hand, as I say, they often crossed enormous distances. And we're finding in our current work of cataloging all these manuscripts from Christian and Islamic traditions, that they are texts that move from one to the other, and they get either baptized or they get Islamicized. And you realize that there was a lot of exchange going on under the surface. Uh, stories, legends, miracles attributed to Jesus in the Islamic tradition— that then get claimed by the Christians. Pretty cool miracle story. And so that's intellectual exchange, as I say, is helping us recreate some understanding of what people were thinking about during these incredibly significant periods
0: of history, which are not unlike our own. My conversation with Columbus Stewart continues in a moment. Lexington Theological Seminary exists to equip leaders for ministry to serve in a variety of settings for the church of today and tomorrow. Flexible, asynchronous online programs allow you to study and complete your assignments around your busy lifestyle. You can start with a certificate and then transfer those credits into one of the master's programs, including the new master's in theological studies degrees in bilingual Latinx studies, African-American ministries, and Master of Divinity. Students can also receive credit for prior learning and life experiences. Affordable fees help students graduate without debt. Most receive a 30% tuition waiver. Members of the Disciples of Christ and United Church of Christ receive a waiver of 50%. To receive more information or talk to an admissions specialist or begin your application, go to the website www.lextheo.edu. So it seems to the outside observer, to somebody like me, who, you know, you see you doing work like this and just the logistical undertaking of it all seems very complicated. You know, embarking on a specific project to photograph documents or manuscripts in a very distant or hard to get to place that may be experiencing upheaval or war. How do you get started? How do you, how are you put in touch with the communities and organizations that hold these materials, how do you go about gaining their trust?
1: It's a process, and often it's a multi-step process. So sometimes we're approached, and in other cases, we're aware of a collection or a place where we would like to work. The key is finding somebody who is an introducer or influencer, typically a member of the community in question, or a very trusted outsider somebody who's spent a long time with that culture, who speaks the language, knows the tradition. And then when we have that direct introduction, we get to work on demonstrating the fact that we come from, with an attitude of respect, we come from a position of desire for mutual understanding, and we make it also clear that we regard the people we're speaking with as potential partners. So it's not that we're coming in and doing something for them. In fact, our whole approach is the opposite of the old colonial model, where you have a snatch and grab of cultural heritage, take it to a museum somewhere. Instead, we work with them to train members of their own community or tradition how to do the work. And they're the ones who actually handle the manuscripts. So when it becomes clear that we're approaching them as brothers and sisters, as opposed to Somebody coming in, say, thinking about this as an example of foreign aid or providing a service for you, that instead we're helping them preserve their own culture, it changes the dynamic and it softens the fact that we're foreigners. I'm an American. That doesn't always work so well in some places. Being a monk is tremendously helpful, even with the Muslims that we work with. Because a Benedictine monk is the very platonic form of not-for-profit. So it's clear I have no commercial edge. I'm not getting any personal advantage out of this. This really is for a shared goal of preserving knowledge. And we also hope furthering understanding. And since we work in so many places where communities feel under pressure, Christians in the Middle East, Muslims in a place like India, where there are millions and millions of them, but they're a minority and an increasingly threatened minority. That really
0: signifies. Yeah. And you've had some occasions too, I guess, where you've ended up in a place where conditions might not necessarily be great or entirely safe. And haven't you been exposed a couple of times to a potential danger where you've traveled?
1: A couple of times. My first trip to Iraq in 2009 it was a very tense period in Iraq. The American forces were still on the ground. I was there with Iraqi Christians. And as we went into one town, I was told by my Iraqi colleague, they don't like Americans here, so we're going to tell them you're a French Benedictine. And I, our common language was French, so we were speaking French to each other this whole time. And so I had to f- pretend being French in this village on the very night when President Obama announced the withdrawal of American troops from Iraq. So like the one day you want to be an American in this village, and I couldn't do it. So I wasn't in any particular danger, but they were anxious. The more frightening experience was in Mali, northern Mali, Timbuktu, Fabled Desert City. The first time I'd been able to get up there, and there was an attack on a U.N., communications post which was about a 100 yards from the hotel that I was in with my two colleagues and there was a firefight that lasted several hours uh, and there were people shooting from the garden of the a very small hotel we were in so we were hiding out i think we ended up hiding out for about 8 hours barricaded in a room while this continued and eventually got rescued by swedish un peacekeepers who then took us to their camp where we spent the next three days as prisoners of Swedish hospitality. So were we in direct danger, they weren't shooting at us. They didn't know we were there. The risk would have been that we would have been discovered and kidnapped because the business in Mali is you kidnap a foreigner and you hold them for a few years to bid up the price on the ransom. And I suspect my monastery would depreciate me at a pretty rapid pace um, just as well I didn't get kidnapped.
0: So you've discussed this elsewhere. I'll admit I did a little preparatory reading in advance of this interview, but I liked the story that you told. And I wonder if you could also maybe tell our audience about the name you took on entering monastic life, Columba, and how that what went into choosing that name and some of the things that you were thinking about when you did that. Mm-hmm.
1: So in some religious orders, particularly monastic ones, there is an old tradition of taking a new name when you enter the monastery. This was not, in fact, required in my community. So some of us change, some don't. I changed mostly because at the time I joined, our community was larger than it is today. And my baptismal name is Andrew. And we had a father, Andrew, and a brother, Andrew, and a brother, Andre. And I thought, I don't want to spend at least the first decades of my monastic life, being disambiguated by my brothers, So oh, Andrew Stewart. And I also liked that idea. So I looked around for a monastic name from the British Isles, which is where my family's from originally, that wasn't already taken. But we had an Elred, we had an Aiden, we had some of the obvious suspects. And then I learned about St. Columba. I didn't know much about him before. My family is Scottish rather than Irish. But even so, I didn't know much about Columba. But the more I read about him, the more I was sold. So he's very famous as a monk who loved books, and he was a very famous copyist. And the story is told that he visited a monastery and saw a very nice Psalter, and he wanted to copy it. And the abbot said no. And he would sneak into the library at night to make an illegal copy and was discovered, of course, as you would expect, as he was writing the very last word, which led to a big. Conflict like some kind of clan based conflict and a ruling by somebody who was considered a judge that, as to every cow belongs her calf, so to every book belongs its copy and I am told that in some law schools, this legend is told in copyright courses as the origin of copyright, so you can see the the cow and the calf and the book and its copy analogy, so he loved books. And there is a Psalter in Dublin called the Caha in Irish, which is thought it may actually be in his own hand. It's the oldest Irish copy of the Psalms. Very interesting manuscript. The other thing I learned about him was that he is the first person recorded to have actually seen and encountered the Loch Ness monster. And he apparently frightened the beast away as he was crossing Loch Ness on this. This little skin boat, the coracle, they call this little boat, by making the sign of the cross. And then the thing slithered under the water and went away, which says that there is something in there, whether they can find it or not, that we have proof. A saint of God saw this thing. So I thought, what's not to like about this guy? He's into books, which I am. He's into adventure and the natural world as I am. And so,
0: so it's stuck. So here I am. And I was waiting for you to build to the Loch Ness Monster part because that was the part I liked best about this story. Not that all the rest wasn't great, but (laughs) Columbus Store, thanks again for being on the Commonweal Podcast.
1: Thank you, Dominic. I really enjoyed it.
0: You can learn more about the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library and its digital platform at the Himmel website. I should also note that several of us had the pleasure of meeting Columbus Stewart last fall when he and Commonweal each received a Gaudium Award of Merit from the Brookline Institute at its annual dinner in New York, an honor I'm proud that we can say we share in common. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.